0: Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance, from building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Good
1: afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm excited to be here, my first podcast of 2024 as a host. Um, Congrats to all of you seniors who submitted all of your applications. Uh, And today we're going to turn our attention to those who are... In later stages, but um, in some cases, maybe just getting started. Um, As a quick reminder, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to have you um, on board for the ride. All right. We're going to talk a lot about athletics today, specifically recruitment and scholarships. But before we get to that, um, we're going to really focus on how to get started, especially with and particular with research. And I'm very excited to welcome my co-host, who I rarely get to speak with on the show because when I'm not hosting the show, he's off because then he hosts the show. Um, that's Ian Fisher. He's a former admissions officer at Reed College, and we're going to talk research. Hi, Ian.
2: Hi, Beth. I, I told the producer, I said, you know, I can I can also go on the show and be a guest and be an expert. <laughs> I would be happy to do that. And I'm delighted that, that we get to do it here for your your first hosti- hosting gig of 2024.
1: I love it. Always happy to see your face when we're talking about these different things. Um, me too. All right. So research. To me, research is the answer to almost everything, especially how do I get started? That's so like, if I know you and I have both experienced this. You pick up the phone, you get on the phone with a parent, um, and the first question they ask is like, where do I start? Where does my students start? Um, so where do you suggest that students start?
2: I, it, it's important to look at the calendar and understand where we are, right? We still have nearly a year before many students will submit their, their applications, and that's a lot of time to conduct research. Now, if you wait till the last minute for any assignment, it's not going to go particularly well. That's especially true for the college research process. You want to spread this out as much as you can over many months. And the best place to start is to get acquainted with the opportunities that are out there. Right. So it's really helpful to understand the differences between, say, a research university. In a small liberal arts college, mm-hmm. it's really important to take a look at schools that have about 10 to 15,000 students and what their offerings might be in comparison to schools that have 20, 30, 40,000 students. By looking at some of these options, especially in your local area where you have access to schools that you can visit, where you might have some an understanding of what they have to offer, you can create that initial framework for what colleges are conceptually, and then you right. can continue to build on that framework over many months uh, as they as they come.
1: Right, I love it. I love that as a, a, yeah, as kind of a framework for getting started in research, I think that's a great plan. I am curious, what is, when you hear, I, I need to do research, What is what's the first thing that pops into your mind? I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is the internet. Um, which yeah. is added a completely new dimension to the entire college process that I will date myself by saying did completely did not exist when I applied to college. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that research is, we don't want to limit research to the internet, right? So let's talk That's to right. me about the different ways you can research and then maybe we can dig into the how of it all.
2: Right. And this is not just me or you kind of hanging on to the way that we did it as the best way to do it. Because I had, when I was a student, I had a book that mm-hmm. I used, that I read, that I took notes in, that I that I put sticky notes in as I was finding schools that I liked. Behind me, there's one book on my bookshelf that is lime green in color. It's the Fisk Guide to Colleges. And I tell just about every family with a junior in it that they should buy that book. So it is not expensive. And in it, there are 350 or so colleges with a full two, two and a half page description of what that school has to offer, what makes it notable, and why students tend to choose it. I think it's really great to start with a book. And the reason for that is that you're walking in where every school is being compared on the same terms. Mm -hmm. When you look at research on the internet, you're in a position where every school's website is a little bit different. The things that they focus on are going to be different. They're showing you their best side. They're not necessarily showing you everything that you need in order to understand. So a book is a great place to start because it can help you to get that foundation that we're talking about. And then you can use the internet to go and find very specific answers to the kinds of questions that you want to ask. Um I want to just follow up. You said when when, you say, when people tell you research, what do you think of? I typically think it's somebody who wants to go find some rankings and make it easy, right? So if I want to buy mm-hmm. a new phone, I'm going to go on and say, what's the best phone 2024? And there's going to be a pretty good answer there. And probably three or four things will pop up and I'll choose the one that I like the best. But college research is not like that yeah, because you and I are going to use our phones in very similar ways, but how different students are going to use a college experience is going to dramatically differ. So you got to avoid those ranking systems because they're going to point you towards one answer when in fact, there may be many uh, for you to choose from.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think you and I are on record as uh, being not fans of rankings. I'm sure that those that's people right. listening are thinking, well, that's nice, but we're still going to use them. But I do think you have to be, this isn't meant to be a thing, an anti-rankings thing, but you have to think about who's putting the rankings together. By the way, U.S. News & Report, World Report did that solely to sell magazines, and now basically that's all they do. Um, and... Yeah. You know right. that you have to imagine that their criteria are not your criteria. They're actually just kind of some random things that they chose that were designed to have a select group of schools kind of always appear at the top. And when they don't appear at the top, they rejigger their rankings so that they do. That's <laughs> yeah, all I want to say on that.
2: We got to have Stanford up there. Something's got to be wrong if it's not if it's too far down the list. So exactly. let's, let's adjust the weighting of some different factors. So that's
1: exactly right. So that is what's um, happening. Yeah. So I would, if I, if you take nothing away from this segment today, it's don't start with rankings. That's the only thing I think that we would probably be happiest if you took that away and, and didn't start with rankings. That's fair. Um, And very quickly, the other thing I just wanted to say was that um, you mentioned kind of visiting local schools. When I think research, I always think, you know, going online, reading a book, doing things like that. But there's, you know, in-person research as well, and that's doing some visits. And while these might not be schools that you're interested in or that you're going to apply to – Sometimes there's value in just kind of getting that experience, like you said, a small liberal arts college, a large research university, a medium sized school, and seeing in real life what that looks like can be valuable
2: hundred percent. Yeah. And and I think visiting, visiting is so rates and you don't have to come away from the school wanting to apply in order for the visit to have been valuable, right? You can still learn a lot. You can say, that's not for me, but now I know why it's not for me. And Mm -hmm. as I'm continuing to do my research, I can look for schools that are better at the stuff that I want, And the stuff that I don't want, it doesn't matter if they're good at that or not, because that's not something I'm going to take advantage of. So, a visit can really help you to clarify what your priorities and preferences are.
1: Right. When you were talking about kind of establishing that framework Mm -hmm. that can help you to guide your, maybe your deeper research, what kinds of questions do you recommend that students be asking? Because- I think sometimes, too, students go online and they go to a school's website and they're like, well, I looked through the website and it was interesting. It looked great. People looked like they're having fun. Yeah. And I think many of them kind of skip that part of what am I seeking out when I go online or even when I'm looking in a book?
2: Yeah, if you just go to a school website and you've got no real direction that you're giving yourself, you're going to find a lot of stuff to like. Um, you'll you'll find students having fun. You'll find a lot of great opportunities. You're going to find you know things that celebrate student achievements, whether it's research or internships. Colleges are really great at showing the stuff that they do well. You really got to get past that initial veneer, that first layer, and start to find some things that are more specific to you. So you got to go into any stage in research, except for that initial phase where you're reading about schools and getting kind of your foundation. You got to go in with a set of questions that matter to you. And I typically have students to break, ask them to break it into two categories. So you've got academic priorities, So things that matter to you from the learning experience. And then you've got non-academic priorities, things that matter to you from the overall experience of being there. So for example, an academic priority might be, what is the method of instruction? So is this a school where there's a lot of project-based learning? Is it a place where there are small conference-style classes Are lectures primarily the mode of instruction? You know, how do students actually get information? And if you think about that question in the context of what makes you a successful high school student, that's really key, right? If I do well in classes where the teacher forces me to um, contribute to a discussion and I need that accountability in order to be successful at the college level, well, then I got to look for schools that offer that as the dominant mode of instruction. Um, if I'm someone that wants some experience when I graduate so that I can point to some actual professional experience as I enter the workforce, I want to look at schools that have internship programs and figure out what the success rate is for students who are looking for internships in order to land one and be able to do that as a part of their uh, college career. So th- that's just a couple of examples. And, and I think you, as a student, you can have different kinds of preferences, but you want to get to that level of detail.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. And I do think that oftentimes people go in, they look at the rankings first because they feel it's going to narrow things down for them. But what they wind up doing then is focusing on the same schools that everybody's focusing on rather than focusing on the schools that fit their criteria. Because again, as we mentioned, the rankings are using different criteria than your criteria. So, That's right. when, so now you've got your basics and you've gone out, maybe you have researched, I mean, how many schools do you encourage students to be looking at? There's so many, right? There's more than 4,000. So what's what's a realistic number that you want to yeah. be digging into?
2: <laughs> it reminds me, our, our colleague, Christine, she um, also assigns the FISC guide to, to students. And she told me she she asked a student to buy the FISC guide. And he came to the next meeting and he said, I finished it. <laughs> and she was like, what? And he's like, yeah, it was a lot. I read about a lot of colleges, <laughs> but I finished and she was like, you read the entire book? You read every college? And he said, yeah. Was I not supposed to do that? She, no, no, it's a it's a resource. So uh, not 300, not 350. That's a lot. I thought <laughs> yes. that was so funny. It was so funny. endearing too. It was like, oh, you asked me to get this book? I'd better read it. Yeah. Um, I think you want to be open to many possibilities, but I think that the number that you will probably research – Uh, Read about carefully is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 35. So you'll start with a big list, you'll cast a wide net, but you'll start to research carefully 25, 35 schools. You might visit the websites for 20 schools with those specific questions that you have, and then cut that down to the seven to 10 that we're looking for. So it's very much a funneling process where you start big, and at every phase, you're eliminating contenders from the list so that by the end, you've got your favorites. And of course, as you do that, Beth, you want to be mindful of which ones are more selective and which are less selective so that I'm not only ending up with the eight IBS in MIT and now I'm ready to apply to those yeah,
1: schools. Exactly. Where we will remind our listeners that less than 3% is the acceptance rate at some of those schools. It's tough so, out there. Yeah, it's, it is tough out there for sure. Um, and actually, if people are wondering about actually putting together a list, we've done a number of segments on the podcast in the past about... Where do you start putting together a list? And so really, we're less talking about putting your actual list together today and more talking about how do you dig into those schools that seem to be in line with you from the perspective of how you're doing in school and then also in terms of what you want out of college, because that is the ideal. Those two things, meeting together, is kind of where the magic happens. That's right. Um, Any any tips that you have in terms of using research – to go from, let's say you've got 20 schools, but you know you only really want to apply to say 10.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you dig a little okay. deeper using research to get to that 10?
2: There are, a couple, there are a couple of ways of doing this. I think one thing that's really key that I want to stress and want to emphasize is that as you're doing this, you want to take notes. So if you spend an hour one night researching a school and you've got your questions in mind that you're looking for and you go to these different pages on their website and you find the information, but then you don't actually track it for yourself The next day when you wake up, you're not going to remember all that stuff. There are too many colleges. They're going to tend to bleed together. And so it's very important that you come up with some sort of a note-taking system. I encourage students to just create a spreadsheet where they can put in their thoughts of a school as they're researching that school. So that's really key because it allows you, to your question, to look back and to make comparisons between different institutions. I also encourage students to just give a school a gut ranking or a grade after they've researched it that first time. And you can adjust it. But if I go to a website and I love the school, I love everything I'm reading, maybe I give it an A. If I'm kind of lukewarm, but I see the possibilities here, maybe it's a C for me. And so if I look at my 20 schools that I've researched, I'm going to keep all the A's. I'm going to grab those B's. And then maybe there's one or two Cs that I'll keep around, but the Ds and the Fs, they're out of there, right?
1: Right. So so
2: I think that's a really easy way to do it. And then for the students that are really analytically inclined, sometimes I'll have them rate the school on each of their subcategories, right? So all of your academic factors and all of your non-academic factors, and then create an average. And maybe it's on a 10-point scale. And so you can go nuts with this if you're really interested in data, um, and you can factor in a lot of different things and see how those schools stack up. But you know, Beth, when I've had students do that, they'll find that the school that is not MIT is the top-ranked school, and then they change their rankings yes. in order to make sure that MIT gets there. So you see mm. students doing it in real time.
1: Yeah, literally was about to say, and be honest with your rankings and <laughs> you don't doubt to. them when they turn out because, yeah. you know, I don't know, we could do five shows on the importance of paying attention to what really matters to you and worrying less about the brand name, and we'd be talking into the ether. Um <laughs> Any any last thoughts as we kind of wrap up the segment on research?
2: Yeah, the, the last thing to say is that your research, first of all, is work and it is part of the process. A lot of students think this is just something I have to do. My counselor is asking me to do it. My parents are asking me to do it. It creates value for you. It makes your application better. And I will tell you, even students that I've had that have gotten into their ED school, they have... The the best and most successful students have done a lot of research across many schools and have come up with a plan where that ED school is clearly their number one choice because of that research process. And they don't ever feel like they wasted their time in investigating those schools. The last little bit to remind folks of is a lot of schools have supplemental essays. Why do you want to come to this college? And if you are not looking at your notes as you're writing that essay, it's a missed opportunity. Done so much work to research schools, put that information into your writing to support your application.
1: Exactly. Because the reality is you do have really good reasons for why you want to attend that school. But if you don't add them to that essay and all you're saying in the essay is you're such a great school, I love you, (laughs) then you're not making that connection. You're not showing the colleges how much you've actually done. So, That's right. Ian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for getting up early and joining the show today as a guest. I really appreciate it.
2: It's so good to see you. Thanks for having me.
1: Appreciate it. You too. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking all things athletics. So don't go away.
3: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com/slash experts to learn more. The boroughs
0: are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? we want the truth you need an edge burrows and burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high stakes world of real estate from palm beach to palm springs manhattan to malibu we press the experts to expose the pain find the deals and occasionally predict the future that's burrows and burbs three o'clock eastern noon pacific because everyone can make money in real estate the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In A College Coach Conversation. Very excited to dig into athletics, both recruitment and scholarships. Today. And um, to do that, I'm welcoming two of my colleagues, uh, Stacy McFeders, who is a former financial aid officer at Emerson, Elm, and Mount Holyoke colleges, but is also the mother of a recruited athlete. So she's <laughs> going to provide a couple of perspectives for us today, which I'm very excited about. And Michael Yeager, who's a former admissions officer at St. Lawrence and Wheaton colleges, and who um, also did some work as an athletics liaison. I myself was an athletics liaison at Penn. And Michael, who knows? You may have a- recruited athletes at some point in your future since you've got three kids in the wings right now.
4: We're working on it. Working doing, on you it. You know, skills drills with my five-year-old. But yeah. I like it.
1: That works. All right. right, let's. We are going to try and cover a lot of ground. So I want to dig into it right away. Uh, and Michael, I'm going to start with you and – Like, how do you start? You, you are a talented athlete or you think you are, or you have a talented athlete as a parent. How do you begin the process? Do you reach out to coaches? How do you do that? Talk us through kind of the early stuff.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. One that, you know, I hear from parents a lot. is just like, where do we begin? I have a ninth grader or a 10th grader. I think with athletics, it does tend to start a little bit earlier if you think you're going to be playing at the college level. Um, And so really the first thing you can do is get a talent evaluation and figure out like how good am I uh, in comparison to all the athletes that are out there. Because high school good is different than than college level varsity athletics. And so really a lot of students, if they're looking for a talent evaluation, should start with their coaches, high school coaches. If they're playing for a club team or if they're playing with an outside program to see like what level do do these coaches think I'm at? Uh, And you should have some. Some pretty good comps with on your team. So you should have some, you know, some guys or girls that have been in the program before you that are now playing at D1 or playing at D3. And you can measure up, you know, you played against them in practice all the time. These are the kids that just graduated the year before. So the biggest first step would be just going out there and figuring out you know, what kind of level am I going to be at? And then you can kind of move on to the next phase.
1: Right. I do love that you positioned it as ninth and 10th grade parents asking that question or athletes, because if I had a dollar for every senior who asked me that question, which is never a good moment where you're like, well, how do you begin? Can we go back in time? Because like you said, it's an earlier thing. And um, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of you get the talent evaluation and now you want to let coaches know about you. And and Mike, I'm going to go back to you for this one. And then Stacy, I'd love to get your thoughts on how the process worked for your daughter. Mm-hmm.
4: Sure. Yeah, I think if you if you hear back from coaches and they say like, oh, you know, you might be a D three or a D two athlete, uh, you know, oftentimes I think kids will hear that messaging. And so, really, one of the first things you can do is start. Reaching out to coaches. If you're if you're a high school junior and you have PSAT scores now and you have five semesters worth of grades now, that's enough for coaches to at least get an early glance academically. So they can go over to the admissions office and say, like, hey Mike, can we get this guy in? Or does this guy have a chance? So mm-hmm. we can do that that early kind of uh, phase of you know is this student going to be recruitable from the admission side and then obviously from a coach's standpoint really starting to dig in and see like is this a student that we want to evaluate do we want to go to one of their games Do we want to offer them you know something to do with a prospect camp like how are we going to put eyes on them are we going to communicate with their club coaches or their high school coaches because we have a relationship there so uh, but really taking that taking that first step to put yourself out there is going to be um going to going to at least get you into the pipeline
1: Right. And then, of course, we don't want to forget that there are going to be coaches who will actually, when they're allowed to, reach out to athletes as well. But I do think we're talking today maybe a little bit more to those who haven't heard from coaches yet. But, Stacey, talk us through what happened with with Delaney.
5: Yeah. So I agree with everything Michael said. Um, It it starts early, right? So we recognized... as early as her freshman year, you start to see coaches mingling around tournaments, right? So there's that separate space where they're allowed to sit. And um, so we started to recognize that that was happening um, around for her, her sophomore year, she started to do a lot more on um, the recruitment side. She had started to hear a little bit from coaches. Um, unfortunately, she happened to be in that year during COVID. <laughs> so things yeah. are a little different, but realistically, the process remains the same. Um, she started to reach out to coaches via email Um, every um, athletic department has a recruitment document that they want you to fill out. So she did a lot of that. She was really focused. She talked to a couple of D1 schools, um, but I think she recognized pretty quickly based on what she wanted. She was looking D2 or D3, ultimately landed D3 um, for a million reasons, most of which were focusing on academics. um, Mm -hmm. But um, that process isn't is not all that different. Uh, And I think you hit the nail on the head when seniors are asking the question. uh, And we just had a chat about this among some colleagues the other day. Senior thinks she's, you know, should be playing. And and someone responded, I think it might be too early. I'm sorry, it was a junior. I think it might be too early. And my response was, I think it might be too late. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So hopefully the folks we have out there are early in the game. But realistically, uh, a lot of the sort of initial conversation probably will start with with the student-athlete.
1: Yeah. And well, and I think the other probably big thing, and and Stacey, you and I are going to dig into this a little bit more when we talk scholarships, but the sport you play is probably also going to impact the timeline, right? So, a very close friend of mine, her daughter was recruited for field hockey. She, that started her sophomore year. By junior year, she had already committed to where she's going to be attending school. And she just got accepted officially, you know, last month. So, Um, but, but there aren't that many students getting recruited for field hockey by the time they're a junior, those coaches have already lined up their, um, their roster for the following year already. So, yeah. So I think that's an important thing. So so Michael, what if, um, you reach out to a coach and you don't hear back, um, from them?
4: Yeah, it's going to happen. I mean, one, they're coaches and they're running around nonstop, especially if they're in season, You know, and I think some students will do that often to reach out during during in season or during a period where the coach can't really reach out. So it's not to be deterred. I think, you know, continuing to to look around and find if there is a place for you. Um, But a lot of times, you know, you'll get stock communication from coaches, too. And so discerning what's the difference between like, you know, getting invited to a prospect camp that everybody's getting invited to versus a coach texting you at eight o'clock asking how your game went the day before. Yeah. you know, there's, there's definitely some differences in terms of communication style that you're going to get from coaches. And so if you're persistent and, and you want to play at the next level, you have to keep reaching out.
1: Right. And, and Stacey, did you see that difference um, in Delaney's process? Yeah, for sure. I, and
5: sometimes it was, it was exactly that. It was persistence. It could be exactly what Michael said. They're in season or they just finished a season. Um, it could be that your initial email didn't say anything important. So then you follow up with something else, maybe film or whatever the case may be. Um, But I think that that's that's pretty critical. The other piece that we found was very interesting is pay a little bit more attention when you're visiting school websites to see if there's somebody else on the coaching staff that's responsible for recruitment. So often students will reach out to the head coach, but really it's one of the assistants that's in charge of frontline recruitment, probably at the the beginning stages. Um, And and for sure, um, there's a little more traction when you found somebody that you could get to respond (laughs) be honest so yeah yeah
1: you mentioned um both of you I think mentioned video do you does every athlete need a highlight reel or is that only essential for some what are your thoughts
4: I'm curious to hear a little bit about Stacey's experience because my experience with coaches has been that the highlight reel isn't necessarily something that they're looking for, that they want to see the whole game. They want to see a kid respond when they get knocked down. You know, They want to see a kid communicate with their teammates. How are they leading? How are they acting in, inside of a huddle? Like All those things that a college coach is thinking about, like I'm going to bring this kid into my program, into our family. Like We want to see the whole thing, not just the four-minute clipped up, of a so kid, you know, with their best yeah. four minutes of the year, but I don't know if, if, you know, Stacey haven't just gone through this, if she was asked for highlights or if she was asked for full game tapes.
5: Hundred uh, percent. So it's funny that you know I. I think I said film, and then I actually was going to correct myself. So she did start with a highlight reel because I think, like anyone, you want to send something short to get started. But I will tell you, across the board, unequivocally, she was asked for game film, um, and had to send several: a winning game, a losing game, um, mm. and and they asked for full film. So I think that's exactly what they're looking for. Is not just those. Yeah, everybody's going to grab their highlights, but what happens when you're you know subbed out or or you know called for a foul that you don't agree with or whatever the case may be. So yeah, for sure. There was a lot of full game film being handed over.
1: My bottom line message to families here too is do not spend a ton of money to have something fancy put together because I am guarantee you that the full game film is not fancy at all. It's probably <laughs> like, oh, that was a funky angle. And can <laughs> they, you know, like, but you're just watching like whatever some parent filmed on the sidelines and that's fine. They don't need fancy. They need to see what the athlete can do in all those scenarios that you guys just explained. So... Um, please don't go spend a lot of money on that. That is not something you need. So, Michael, you mentioned um, discerning the difference between being invited to attend a prospect camp that maybe everyone is attending and getting a text. So talk to us about prospect camps. Does that mean you're being recruited?
4: It, it could. Um, you know, I think for college coaches, I mean, they – one they're looking to make some money off of camps right so like assistant coaches don't make a lot of money a lot of times college programs this is a way to help boost some of their assistant salaries is to have a big camp the other thing The other reason they're doing it is because they want to put eyes on a lot of kids. So they want to be able to get kids into a competitive environment and see who responds well in a camp environment where it's short and intense and kids are exhausted. And so they'll get to see them from every aspect, you know, go into the dining hall afterward. So from a coaching standpoint, prospect camps are great. Now, are you really a prospect? Maybe. If a coach is really pursuing you, they've already seen you at a game. They say, hey, I need you to come to my camp. Uh, they've they've been back and forth with you on text or on email, then maybe. But for a lot of students, it's just a way. It's an opportunity for you to go and showcase your skills, and that's the way it should be viewed.
1: Right, and yeah, you know, maybe you blow someone away, and maybe yeah. you don't, but you have the opportunity. Um, in the interest of uh, of a little bit of time, what does it mean? when a coach supports you in the admissions process, I have some thoughts about this too, but I would love to get, um, Michael, why don't we start with you? And then Stacy, maybe you could share if, um, if Delaney got that like different messages from different coaches.
4: It it means a lot. I mean, in the admissions process, it's a, it's a big deal. If a coach is supporting you, they've, Likely already vetted you with the admissions office. So, one of my roles, you know, as you mentioned, Beth, was being an athletics liaison at, at Wheaton and at St. Lawrence. And so, in that role, coaches are coming to me all the time with a transcript and test scores and saying, like, hey, can I recruit this kid or should I recruit this kid? And, and you could tell them, like, go for it or no or <laughs> somewhere in between. Depends on how this next semester goes for them. But If a student has already gone through that process and they're now entering into the fall semester of their senior year and the coach is calling them and saying, hey, I'm going to support you in the admissions process, um, they've taken a lot of steps where they don't want to break that relationship with the student, with the coaches that they've had communication with that coach the student. So it's a big deal as far as the admissions process.
1: Right. Right. And, and Stacy, what was your experience with that or, or Delaney's experience? Yeah, I agree. So I can
5: actually provide two perspectives on that. So um, in the admission slash recruitment process, when a coach tells you they're going to support you, it's, it's critical, um, especially if the school might feel like it might be slightly out of reach from an, an admissions perspective. But also, again, remembering that Delaney went D3, um, there was a little scholarship antics involved as well. So, you know, the coach always would keep one or two players in their pocket. They would go to committee for. Higher scholarship opportunities if they were awarded by merit or leadership or whatever the case might be. Again, recognizing that D3 schools don't award uh, athletic scholarships. So there was always sort of that piece of it. And then at the same time, when I was a, a director of financial aid at one of the schools that I worked at, I actually sat on the um, merit committee and cannot tell you how often I had coaches sitting in my office going to bat for, you know, X, Y, or Z student. We have a leadership um, opportunity, merit opportunity that we offered. Again, not necessarily to athletes, it could have been anyone um, and um, frequently more frequently I saw coaches than than others going to bet for those leadership opportunities so it definitely can play a huge role
1: yeah and I and the only nuance I wanted to add into this is what is, you know you have to pay attention to what the coach is saying and typically they are going to say I am supporting you in the, with the admissions process but what they might say is I can't fully support you in the admissions process, but I can put in a good word with you uh, for you with admissions. My experience at Penn, that's meaningless because we would say to the coaches, if this athlete is important to you, then they better be on your list. If they're not on your list, it's just another student. Um, and there were enough recruited athletes that we didn't have space to then consider someone who wasn't sort of like actively up for a roster spot. And so when I have a student who says to me, Well, the coach isn't going to, you know giving me, isn't giving me a spot, but they said they're going to put in a good word for me with admissions, my immediate reaction is that's, doesn't matter. (laughs) That's not going to impact. your getting in because of your record and not because of your athletics. And um, so I think that's an important distinction too. And I also want to encourage families to ask, if you're not quite sure what the coach means when they say, I'm going to support you in the admissions process. Ask them, what does that mean? You should never be afraid to ask questions um, that clarify things for you because it could mean that two coaches are saying the same thing, but one means, yeah, we're supporting you, you're gonna, I'm going to admissions and you're probably getting in. And the other could just mean, oh, I'm gonna put in a good word for you. And you know, you wanna act accordingly. Um, and you know. Ideally, you like the coach in the school that's supporting you more than the one that's not really supporting you. So I think those are important distinctions. Um, Michael, anything else on the that initial recruitment process? We're going to take a quick break and go to scholarships. But before we do that, um, I know there's a couple of other things we wanted to hit on, um, like early decision, things yeah, like that. I'm-
4: just to bounce off like what we were just talking about if a if a coach is saying they're going to support you oftentimes there'll be a caveat with that a coach will say I'm going to support you at early decision because they're looking at their recruitment board and they have you know five point guards and if they can lock their top choice in at early decision no, they, they can celebrate. They know that they have yes. their point guard next year. They can move on to the next position. They can start you know, working, uh, working to, to build the depth of their roster. But that may be a, an additional caveat that especially a lot of D3 schools and more competitive academic schools that offer early decision, um, that can be a, a particular carrot that coaches use.
1: Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about scholarships and then have some final thoughts, particularly around parents' role in the process um, and some things like that. So don't go away.
0: Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio.
3: In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results... 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more.
0: Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. All right, we're getting right back into athletics, and this time we're going to talk more about scholarships. Um, all right, so, Stacy, if I had a dollar... For every time, this is probably if someone had a dollar for every time I start with, if I had a dollar with. But anyway, the number of times I've had someone say to me, oh, my neighbor just, you know, got a full ride to go to this school because he's such a great football player. I'd be a really rich person because in general, full ride, not really a thing. Talk to us about that.
5: Yeah. So full ride is only a thing in less than 1% of all scholarship examples. So let's put a little context around it. There's only about 177,000 scholarships available across all platforms. Um, So what that means is D1 athletes, D2 athletes, NIAA, and uh, junior college. Division three doesn't award athletics. Uh, Ivy leagues don't award athletics. The Liberty league does not award athletics. So you're talking a very small universe of schools. And then among those schools, there are only six sports that are allowed to offer the full ride as I use quote fingers and you know, I hate that expression. So those are, um, men's and women's basketball, football, and then women's tennis volleyball and gymnastics. That's it. Those are the only sports that are allowed to offer full ride. So when you hear someone say that, just know that that's not necessarily true. Um, again, only for those six sports only for those colleges that award it. And even within those six sports, um, coaches have the discretion of not using the full uh, ride (laughs) for their players. Um, So just know that when you are competing for scholarship dollars, you're really talking about a much, much smaller dollar amount.
1: Right. So in the football example, when someone says it's football, there is a tiny bit of a chance like, oh, it might be that, right? Because it's a big sport. But even like you say the coach could be recruiting 20 kids that doesn't mean 20 you know 20 are getting a full ride it could mean that the blue chip couple of athletes who might get drafted and play in the NFL in the future those might be the ones that are getting full rides but yep. it's unlikely they're giving out that many of them so yep. that's super helpful context in terms of just even the number of scholarships that are out there um but Let's talk a little bit, because you just mentioned specifically the sports where they do offer full rides, Um, because there is a difference, right, in the different sports that college athletes play. So can you talk to us a little bit about those differences and how that impacts how much scholarship money is available?
5: Yeah, so basically scholarships at the uh, athletic level are offered under two categories. One is called headcount. And those are the six sports that we just mentioned. Football, basketball for both, uh, tennis, gymnastics, and volleyball, sorry. So those are the sports that are permitted to award full scholarships across the board. Everything else falls under what is called equivalency sports. So what that basically means is the coach has a pot of money and they're allowed to distribute those funds across the players that they want the most. So it can be sort of any variation of things. Um, I've actually seen examples where a student thinks they want to go D1, isn't getting the offers that they want, particularly when they're an equivalency sport athlete. Then they drop to D2 and they get higher scholarship offers because they're more desired where the pot of funds is being distributed sort of in an in, inequitable way. So there is some, some thought that if a student is willing to kind of you know, flatten their opportunities um, across D1, D2, D3, they might see more funds um, at a different level.
1: Right. And actually, Michael, you were mentioning that you had some volleyball players in your work. We didn't mention this earlier, but you are also a former high school counselor and you've worked with students being recruited. Ever see any of your volleyball students ever see any of that kind of thing happen or anybody get a full ride? I mean, are we do we have one of those rarities <laughs> here?
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I I worked. So I worked as a high school counselor for about 10 years. I also was a women's volleyball coach and a, and a boys basketball coach. So I worked with a lot of kids and a couple of Pretty good high school programs. I've I've worked with one student who was uh, a boys basketball uh, scholarship candidate, but he went through junior college and eventually was put on scholarship at a small Division one school. Very talented kid. Um, and then I worked with uh, one young woman who, when I arrived on campus, she was a ninth grader, and everyone already knew that she was going to be a full ride kid. It was. Mm-hmm plain and obvious like sec top division one programs were already reaching out to her. Um, so she was one of those kids, but it's been, that's been the one in my you know 10 years uh, of coaching and, and watching it from the admission side.
1: Right. And that's a cream of the crop already knew it as a ninth grader and the very top programs in the country want her right. This is, yep. this is kind of the, the landscape that we're, we're talking about here. Um, and so, uh, you know, if a in terms of scholarships, is it binding? If a coach says, "Hey, I really want you. I'm going to support you in admissions, and by the way, we're giving you this scholarship," but it's all verbal. Mm-hmm. Um, is that binding?
5: It's not. So verbal offers are not binding, uh, and until so on both sides. Interestingly enough, yes. Um, until a student signs a, a letter of intent, it's not binding. But also, sort of at the same time, when a student says yes, I want to accept that their word as is as important as the coach's word. Um, it, it's not. It, it's almost like the ED commitment. You, you know, you apply ED knowing that you are you know committing to the opportunity. Well, when you tell a coach, yeah, that's great, I'd love it, and then you know potentially turn around and back out, that that's not a good look. So realistically, while verbal offers are non-binding on both sides until an NIL ass- uh, a letter of intent is signed, um, it really is just that you know, and, and they can be pulled at any time. So, you know, we've seen instances, I actually was very close to a student athlete, um, at, at the, it, as I was in my coaching process, who had a D1 offer, had a terrible senior year, academically, uh, athletically, they pulled our offer. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of, of sort of back and forth. So it, it, you really want to kind of treat the, the verbal offer as that. But once you've signed on the dotted line, obviously, you want to be committed to the opportunity.
1: Right, right, and, and we're of course not really digging into all the NCAA things here right. and the transfer portal. Not really what our goal is today. We're, right. we're. Um, I would say we know a lot about athletic recruitment, but we are not uh, athletic recruitment and scholarship experts in terms of the real ins and outs of the transfer portal and the NCAA and things like that. But um, I think that you, ideally, you're going to take away some really good. Quality information about how to think about these things. Can we bounce back to the equivalency sports com? Um Conversation, because you know the key is that those those D one sports that you mentioned that do give full rides are revenue often revenue driving sports, right? right? And the equivalency are not necessarily, but some of those are going to be bigger sports than others, like ice hockey at um, Cornell where I went is the big sport. Um, yep. That you know men's ice hockey, I'm they're probably making. Some money off of that um, but then I don't know that anyone's making money off of some of the smaller sports anywhere like fencing for example so what um, how do we think about the equivalency sports when as it relates to the possibility of scholarship dollars
5: it's a great question so I think a couple of things I think one thing that I recognize not only sort of as I've been working in this industry for for you know 30 years but also as a parent of a recruited student you really need to treat every school the same. A D1 school is similar to a D2 school is is similar to a D3 school. Obviously there are nuances and differences, but the reality is the person who who is recruiting you is probably as serious about that sport as anyone else. Um, And now having a student athlete who's been playing for two years, the commitment at D3 is as real as anywhere else. So I think that's important. But I think the other thing too is there are schools that their equivalency sports are their driver. So For them, they probably are driving them revenue. So it almost is a win-win for them. They don't have to give full scholarships, although many of them do, um, because they're making money on that sport. But you also need to recognize where that sport fits for that school. So Cornell is a great example, probably similar to, um, you know, hockey is a great great example because there are schools that have amazing hockey programs that aren't necessarily known for their athletics. Um, So when you're being recruited by those schools, you need to recognize the level of importance at that school, for that sport and how they're going to use their dollars, um, though those dollars for those individual sports are probably more coveted, sort of like they would be at an SEC football school. Um, so you want to think about it in those terms,
1: right? The only thing that's bad about my Cornell example is, of course, it's Ivy and so they don't give athletics right. scholarships. So then I <laughs> exactly. went and like Great. did yeah. that. Michael, any any perspective on the equivalency sport thing or anything that you saw with your students and your time working as a coach?
4: I think it's a great point to think about like how valuable is a sport at the institution as you're as you're making your decision because that, that impacts student experience as well. So if everyone's going to be, you know, at the softball games because that's the sport to be at, I think it, it impacts student experience. It probably in, impacts some other resources that are available. Um, and so it's definitely a good thing to keep in mind as you're out there looking at coaches and looking at programs. There's so many different things to consider, but you this is where you're going to be a student athlete. And so a big part of the experience yes. is, is going to be athletics because you have, you know, weight training and you're going to be set up on classes that, that fit uh, what the athletic program is looking at and what your goals are. And then you're going to have all this other time to, to negotiate. So, um, you know, viewing it from the lens of, you know, if, if athletics is no longer a part of this thing, am I going to be happy at this institution is something that I always talk to students about.
1: Right, exactly, mm-hmm. and and going back to the question of scholarships and my my good and bad example of ice hockey at Cornell, but let's talk a little bit about um, schools that don't give athletic scholarships, but you know, do can athletes qualify for money? It's just not an athletic scholarship. How's that part work?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple different answers to that question. I think the first is if. If a college is not offering athletic or merit scholarships, so our Ivy League example, they don't offer either, excuse me, absolutely, they have opportunities through the need-based aid um, process. So 100%, everyone should be considering that process at those schools. I think the next piece of it that we would want to look at is for those schools that are offering equivalency scholarships, starting, I think it was in 2020, Athletes are now allowed to get not only need-based aid, but merit and they can stack those. So prior to 2020, they weren't allowed to do that. So a lot Mm -hmm. of students were getting sort of an equivalency scholarship offer, but there wasn't enough. So now they are allowed to, in essence, stack those offers. And then the third piece is something that I alluded to earlier, and that is while Division Three schools are not able to give athletic scholarships, it's not unusual to find that they might have merit scholarships available to students across the board that might be um, offered to athletes because they demonstrate leadership, or sometimes student athletes tend to be, you know, great students. I don't know. Um, so realistically, <laughs> do schools offer scholarships? D three schools offer scholarships to students. Um, sure, usually they're merit, and there's usually different criteria. Um, but in every case, uh, students have to meet eligibility requirements. So whether it's a, a merit scholarship an athletic scholarship, um, NCAA or NIAA NIAA requirements, they still have to meet the eligibility requirements. So what I would have folks take away from this is there are financing opportunities at every level, whether it's need-based, whether it's athletic or whether it's sort of a combination of things. Right.
1: Yes. I think great points. And all of this um, leads me to how difficult it might be to manage this process as simply as a student athlete, just all on your own, can be done difficult as you know, what is the role for a parent in this process, both the recruiting process and the scholarship process, and maybe um, Michael, you could start and talk a little about recruitment, so you could add that perspective and then dig into the scholarship
4: mm-hmm. yeah, I think from a recruitment perspective um you know having worked as a liaison with coaches each coach is a little bit different in their personality and how they want to handle and manage parents but i think it's an opportunity from a student perspective to take the lead so if you if you are the one <clears throat> excuse me who's sending the email to the coach if you're the one who's texting the coach if you're the one who arranged the visit if you're the one who showed up and met with the rest of the team you're telling the coach something that you're independent and you're someone who can be reliable whereas if the coach is in the recruitment process getting you know emails from mom or dad you know, mom or dad's the one that's calling. You're signaling to them. And as a college coach, in some ways, like, you don't you don't have to deal with parents anymore. It's a great thing. They all talk about it. Like, I don't have to pick up the I don't have to pick up the call and you know talk to this mom about why you know Johnny didn't play last night. It's just not part of my job description. I don't have to keep them happy. Right. They just have to keep sending the check in. So you know, from from their standpoint, they're looking for you know parents that are going to be responsible, engaged at an appropriate level, but they want the student to take the leap.
1: Yeah. Stacey, did you find that to be the case? A hundred percent. A
5: hundred percent. And, you know, I would take it one step further. Parents are also being watched in the process. So when you're, um, you know, at a tournament game or at a showcase and, you know, the, the coach is watching you too. They don't want a parent who's going to embarrass their program. Um, I, I, true story. Very good friend of mine had a little unfortunate moment at a tournament game and knows that she cost her daughter an offer. Coach told her. Uh, Yikes. And completely <laughs> uncharacteristic but <laughs> but it happened yeah exactly and then I you know I think from the I, I completely agree with Michael all the communication needs to happen at, from the student but it doesn't mean that the parent can't play a role right so as we say when we talk about college finance of any kind it's usually a greater concern of the parents so my suggestion for families would be have the conversation about what you as a family, want to, to to manage from a finance perspective even before you start the process if you know your student is an equivalency athlete and they're only looking at you know a, a couple thousand dollars that might not do it for you so it's the same conversation we always have don't you know reject or or walk away from the school because of cost but make sure you know what your break even is even when there's
1: scholarship dollars involved yeah that is such great advice from both of you and my takeaway is don't be a crazy parent because that's <laughs> a scary story <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I appreciate you so much coming on, sharing your personal and professional perspectives on both athletic recruitment and scholarship. We get a lot of questions about this, and I'm hoping that we manage to answer um, all those questions today. And if we didn't, then, you know, you can always shoot us a question on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, you could send us a question at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, we are, uh, thank you to all of my guests for being here today. Next week, Ian is hosting. We're talking about supporting achieving students in the admissions process, the nuts and bolts of engineering, and it's Financial Aid Awareness Month. Easy for me to say. So you want to tune in, we're going to have all kinds of interesting things for that. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit getintocollege.com.